So I wanted to make sure everyone knew, like last week we had a churchwide vote on three different things. We had a, a ramp that we we're going to put out front where our old ramp is far too steep to be anywhere close to compliant. We're going to put in one that's built appropriately. Uh, we're going to add air conditioning into this floor. Uh, and the third one is that we are um, supporting Pastor Bob as he goes through a certificate program to add to his knowledge base around counseling, reconciliation ministries, and conflict resolution. And yeah, so I, I think it, they all passed overwhelmingly, which was great too. But what's, I think what's so valuable about what Pastor Bob is doing is it's, it's going to be a huge part of the legacy that he leaves this church with 40 years from today when we let him retire. And I, I've told him that. It's not a secret. Um, Moses entered public ministry at 80 and had 40 more years. Bob has no excuses. I, you know, I just like, um, but he is doing, and Nita too, they're doing the work of really building people up to enter into other people's lives at messy places. You know, marriages are struggling, relationships are strained, and helping them have those conversations with people to repair, to deal with, to get out in the open, and to have those conversations. And that's immense, because you think of relational conflict ruins families, it, it damages churches, it just has this ripple effect, and we're really blessed to have Bob doing that. So uh, thank you for all the votes, but particularly around that one, because it's such a big deal to be able to let him do that, because that's, it's such a benefit to all of us. Um, yeah, amen. Um, also, last night, we had a chance to hear from uh, two of our missionaries, uh, Dave and Joy Roselle. They got a chance to share with us briefly last night. They had another church to be at this morning, um, and they gave us an update, which was great. But around that, um, Becky Oliver introduced them, and I thought it was appropriate last night, and I want to again this morning, is the work that Becky does is to publicly thank her for that, because every month, she reaches out to one of our missionaries and gets a full update from that missionary. What's going on in your ministry? What do you need prayer for? How can we support and benefit you? And then she shares that with us as elders. So like the prayer time that we just had with Mike, praying for Jeannie and Dan Gagney, that we know what to pray for because of the work that Becky does every month on our behalf. So we do thank her for that as well. So with all that, um, so the, going through our series around what does the Bible say about uh, I drew the question is around, hey, we talk a lot about Jesus being God, but we don't talk a lot about his humanity. The question might not have said it this way, but what's the story with that, right? So we're going to jump into that today. But as I was studying, I was given a lot of consideration to other religions, other uh, folklore and myth and story, and how often you see these stories of a man becoming a god of sorts, right? And we, we acknowledge these as, as myth or false religions. So when I talk about this, I'm not talking about them as if they're true. I'm talking about them in the way they are conveyed in those faiths. Now, you look at, you go back to like ancient Greek mythology and the story of Hercules or Heracles, as they would have said, he was the, the son of the great god Zeus and the son of a woman, right? So you have this kind of rhyming. But Zeus is born as, or sorry, Hercules is born as a man, not as a god in their mythology. And he does not 
gain any godlike powers until he drinks the milk of a goddess. And that's how he sort of creates that power. And he's not afforded the full godness, if you will, until after he has died. So it's not a, it's a mixture of man and God, not so much that he becomes both, right? And then you move forward to the Romans and they have their Caesars, right? And this is just not a religion, of course, but the Caesars gained more and more power through time through the Roman Empire to the point where they were saying, well, I am God, right? I am, I am deity and you need to worship me as such. And you saw that developing and becoming stronger and stronger through the Roman Empire until they were no longer, um, which they probably deserved with that attitude. Uh, but that they, they had these men born as men and they called them gods, but the Caesars weren't doing anything that was godlike. Um, and then you, you move forward, you have the, the Taoism that developed in China and they would deify their leaders, like their, their prophets, their leaders, they would raise them up and consider them something of a god. And, you know, moving through current times, right, or even the last couple thousand years, the Hindus and Buddhists would do something similar. They're technically atheists, so it's a little messier to kind of talk about it, and I'm not going to dig into the details there, but they would deify some of their leaders through time. And even now, the, the Latter-day Saints, which we used to call the, the Mormons, they have, this is from their fifth president, he says, as God now is, man may be. So they believe that men will become gods. Women will become gods. Obviously, we do not. But you also see the opposite at play. And this is more in our storytelling, in our folklore, and even in the mythology of old, where you'd have gods that become men. They would forfeit their, their godness, like what, what separated them from humanity, to become men. And not even just godness, but these like demigods, these in-between figures in our stories to become men. So we're actually going to look at a little clip of this from Superman 2. Uh, if you're old like me, you remember Superman 2. Um, it came out in 1980, so it's a little dated now. But um, Superman, as most of these stories are, our God character wants to forfeit being a God, not because being a human is so wonderful, but because there's a lady involved, right? That's the arc of these stories. So let's take a look, if we can, at a couple, a minute or so from minute and a half of Superman 2. Father and I try to anticipate your every question, Kal-El. This is the one we hoped you would not ask. But I have to, because she's everything I want in life. And she, the one you have chosen, she feels as much for you? Yes. And if this is what you wish, if you intend to live your life with a mortal, you must live as a mortal. You must become one of them. This crystal chamber has harnessed the rays of the red sun of Krypton. Once exposed to these rays, all your great powers on Earth will disappear forever. But consider. Once it is done, there is no return. You will become an ordinary man. You will feel like an ordinary man. You can be hurt like an ordinary man. Oh, my son, 
sure. So Superman wants to give up what separates him from humanity to become human over the love of a woman, right? He, and his mom's trying to kind of talk him out of it. You're going to give up everything that makes you different. You're going to feel their pain. You're going to suffer their end. You're going to become like one of them. And he says, I have to. I love her. But he can't keep what he has and become man. And, you know, all of these stories, all of these religions, all this mythology is really very separate from Christianity because in Christianity we have one God in three persons, but we have the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity that comes to earth in the flesh as fully God, as fully man to be with us. You know, and as he does that, you know, obviously this is Jesus. He doesn't come as some mutant hybrid mix of part God, part man taking the best of what was God, the best of what was man, and mashing them together into some mutant. He's entirely God. He's entirely man at the same time. You know, he doesn't need to give up who he is as God in order to do this. He doesn't receive any cheat code to live this extra easy human life because he's, well, I'm God. I can. No, no, he lives a typical human life while also being God. And What's interesting, too, is post-resurrection, post-ascension, he still is fully God and fully man. So the question that was posed to us that we're addressing today is really around, why is this important? Why did God need to become a man? And why, in God's ultimate wisdom and sovereignty, did he choose to send the Son as a man to this earth to die? So let's pray. Father, we... Uh, just so thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessings it has over our lives. Uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in your wisdom, you did send him to this earth to live. And we see how important that is to die and to rise again. Uh, we ask your blessing over uh, the sharing of your word. We ask, uh, as we know, that it will not return to you void. Um, we ask that we are challenged by it, that we are changed by it, uh, that we become more like Christ for having been here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So because of time, I'm going to make a, a massive assumption, because this is another entire sermon, but I'm going to pretend we're, or at least hope that we're in friendly territory here and say, Jesus is and always was and remained God, right? We're not going to deal with that this morning. So when he comes in the flesh, he is fully God. I'm not going to validate that. I'm not going to take our time on that, but we're going to acknowledge that it is God in the flesh John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we're going to start with that assumption this morning in our study. And we're going to spend our time really looking at validating from Scripture that Jesus was a man, right? So our, our first, uh, if we can add our slide up here, the first assertion I'm going to make is that Jesus was a full-fledged human being just like you and me. Number two, it was vital to the plan of salvation laid out by the Father that the Son come in human flesh, that he live, be crucified, buried, and rise again in human flesh. And finally, number three, that Jesus is still a human now in heaven. So our first assertion, Jesus was a full-fledged human being just like you and me. Really, we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking through 
the book of Luke on this, because most of what we have in there comes from Luke. Rusty, am I giving you too much exercise? I mean, I, <laughs> we don't have that many slides. Don't worry about it. Um, most, most of the people will actually change their own slides. I'm, I let them do it, so I mess them up. So my fault. Uh, so the first thing we want to look at is Jesus had a natural birth. It was by way of a virgin. You know, the, the, the dad situation was different than, than us. But Luke 135 says, And the angel, angel answered her, that's Mary, saying, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So in the announcement of the coming of this precious baby, it says, the child will be born. A normal baby is to be born here. And we see that actually happening in Luke 2, 7. And she, again, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, a normal baby was born. The baby Jesus needed to be wrapped in swaddling clothes because babies can't regulate their body temperature. He needed to be protected with those wraps just like every baby we have had or as we were when we were that age. He wasn't some super baby that didn't have to worry about it. He didn't at six months go out and slay the beast and cook it for his family for dinner. He was a normal baby. And that is exactly how scripture lays him out to us. As we continue in Luke, we see him growing and developing as a person. Um, in Luke 2.40, it says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Again, our kids, again, when healthy, they grow up. They grow in wisdom. They're intellectually they grow, and physically they grow. They just get bigger. We can't keep them little as much as parents sometimes we say we want to. They grow. Um, Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Not only was he developing physically, but he was de developing spiritually. He grew in favor with God. He grew in favor with man, so he's developing relationally and socially as well. He had a normal development that we could expect of any of us. And Jesus experienced the, the feelings and emotions that we have as well. He wasn't you know, able to bypass those. We see him weeping over the death of Lazarus. We see him weary as he's speaking with the woman at the well in John 4. Uh, physically, we see him thirsty on the cross in John 19. We see him hungry when he's being tempted in the desert after fasting in Matthew 4. We see him growing tired and weary physically when he's carrying his cross and needs the help of Simon of Cyrene, right? Again, this is normal human stuff. If you were to carry a heavy burden for a long time, you'd get tired. Jesus did too. You would need to sleep. Jesus slept. You would need time to rest and be alone. He did that, right? He had a normal upbringing. What is really anecdotal, but I think is really significant as we look through this is, you look at Jesus' experience throughout the four Gospels. There's a lot of discussions and interactions with others that have been brought to us through those Gospels. Nowhere in any of those four books do we see anybody going, 
He's not real. Like that woman on the plane a few weeks ago, if you saw that crazy lady, right? Nobody does that to Jesus. Everybody interacts with him as they would a normal human being. There's no accusations of him being an apparition. There's no of him being like a, a superhuman. He's like, oh, you're super, you can fly. Or like, no, I mean, he did miracles, but they interacted him as if he was a normal human being. I'll say it's because he was a human being. So I think we see really clearly through scripture that we are presented with this second person of the Trinity as a human. He's a special human, but he's a human entirely. So our second assertion, where we'll spend the bulk of our time, it was vital to the plan of salvation laid out by the Father that the Son come in human flesh to live, be crucified, be buried, and rise again in human flesh. Why? Right, and I think this is really the, the crux of our matter. We're, we tend to not spend a lot of time as, why was it so important for Jesus to be human? And we have a, maybe six, six different reasons I go through here. The first is to show us obedience, right? Jesus was sinless. And you see this through scripture, that he knew he was sinless, others knew he was sinless. Uh, John 8, he acknowledges that there's no sin in him. Uh, what is one of the great gospel verses, which I'll read in a little bit, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he knew no sin. In 1 Peter 2, it says, he committed no sin. And in 1 John 3.5, in him, there is no sin. Our, our, the people that were with him, our Bible writers, Jesus himself, everybody testifies that he did not sin. He was entirely sinless. And why does that matter? I think John Packer uh, gives us a, a quote here that I think is really good to start with. He says, this means, this, this lack of sin, means not only that he never disobeyed his father, but that he loved God's law and found wholehearted joy in keeping it. In fallen human beings, there's always some reluctance to obey, and sometimes resentment amounting to hatred at the claims he makes on us, Romans 8, 7. But Jesus' moral nature was unfallen, as was Adam's prior to his sin. And in Jesus, there was no prior inclination away from God to Satan to play on as there is in us. Jesus loved his Father and his Father's will with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. So when we are presented with opportunity to obey or disobey, we really do one of three things, right? We can obey wholeheartedly and with joy the way Jesus did 100% of the time without fail. We can obey kind of begrudgingly, right? Everyone ever tell your kids to clean their room and they go, fine, and then they go clean their room, they're not doing that with love and joy to you as your, their parent at that point, right? My kids would never do that, right? Believe that one, I'll tell you another. Um, but you can, you can obey begrudgingly, or you can flat out disobey. I'm just not doing that. You know, you wouldn't say this out loud because you'd be embarrassed by it, but you, really what you're saying in your heart is, you know, I know the Bible says this, but I know better my situation, what I need right now, um, and we just flat out disobey. What Packer's pointing out so clearly here is that the number two and three options never happened with Jesus. 100% of the time, he perfectly obeyed 
the Father's will. And what an example to us in that obedience. And what's so great is in his being sinless, he fulfills the law. So Matthew 5, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. So the law still sits there. The law still condemns us, but Jesus came to fulfill that law. So why does it matter that he fulfilled the law? We read in Romans 5, 18 and 19, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one sin leads to everybody being condemned. The sin of Adam in the garden leads to everybody following Adam to sit in his condemnation. We are physical children of Adam and we inherit that sin nature and that condemnation that comes with it through that. So as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One act of righteousness, the death of Christ on the cross, as a culmination of a life of obedience, leads to justification, being declared right, being made right, and life for all of his children. We are spiritual children of Christ once we are in Christ. So one sin leads to condemnation. Now one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. So that obedience is what enabled him to be in a position to do that. Romans continues for us, by the one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Christ on the cross, the many will be made righteous. That's wonderful news. Because we were all sitting and they all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That was all of us apart from Christ. And this, to me, this might be the, the, the central thing I want to get across this morning is if Jesus had only been placed on the earth and God goes, all right, here's what I got. We're not going to go through that whole birth and growth and development thing. Like you're God, you can skip all over this. You're going to be okay. You can jump right in the middle here. So the night of the garden, I'm going to put you there. It, like right before the, the, the Romans show up with Judas to kiss you. And, and we're, we're just going to skip right to the last act of that play. And I'm going to put you there so that you immediately you get arrested. You have that sham trial that they put you under. They beat you and flog you and crucify you. And you're only on earth less than 24 hours to die. Because the dying is what really matters, Right. No, we can't skip over the life. Because if, if Jesus only came here to die, but not also to live, we get saved from our sins. He would still be worthy of having the, the authority to forgive our sins based on his death. That would be fine. But that's only hell insurance. We, Jesus did not come simply to save us from our sins, he also came to save us to his righteousness. And it is the obedient life that we are now credited with in the greatest exchange. We, we don't come to God on our record now. We come on the, the perfect record of Christ, a life well lived, that we say, that's now mine. And I reference 2 Corinthians 5.21, and that's what it says. It says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin." 
on the cross, he, he became sin on our behalf. Why? Why? Right? He knew no sin. He, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He didn't, sin was never part of his experience, and now he becomes sin on the cross. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. My sin for his righteousness, his righteousness for my sin. The greatest exchange you can imagine. Why did he have to live life as a human? To qualify himself to have that perfect record such that we could then claim it as our own. His obedience and faithfulness really, really matters. The second area we look at around why it's so important for him to have lived a life as a human was it qualifies him to be both the perfect high priest as well as the perfect sacrifice. So we see these developing. So in Hebrews, it talks about him as as our priest. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, which is a fancy old word we don't use a lot anymore, but it just means satisfaction or appeasement for the sins of the people. So it was the life that he lived that made him able to become the merciful and faithful high priest. And then in Hebrews 12, we see him as the sacrifice. 12 to 14 in Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, himself, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is the verse 14, the best part here. For by a single offering himself, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Is there any other example where you have the priest becoming the sacrifice? And he was perfectly fitted for both. So we've moved from under the, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they had this imperfect priest making imperfect sacrifices to now having the perfect priest, Jesus, making the perfect sacrifice, Jesus. The, the priests... Every year, you, look, you read through the, the, the first five books of the Bible, right? You see a lot, in, especially in Leviticus, around what it took to be a priest. So they had restrictions on who could and who couldn't based on what tribe, and you had to be physically pretty perfect. Like, right? But they were flawed. How do we know they were flawed? What did they have to do before they could make sacrifices on behalf of the people? They had to make a sin offering for themselves. They had to make atonement with, with a sacrifice for their own sins, Because they were flawed. They didn't have right to come in before God. They didn't just have free reign. The high priest could only do it once a year into the Holy of Holies. And even then, the legend has it, they they would tie a rope to him with bells on it to make sure it was still moving because they couldn't even go in there and check on him if he'd been in there too long. They'd just see if he would still be moving around. The Old Testament system of the blood of bulls and goats was limited in effect. They had to do this over and over and over again. There was nobody 200 years post-Exodus sitting in the promised land going, I'm skipping Passover this year. Great grandpa, he put the blood above the door. We got passed over, we're good. 
No, they had to do the Passover every year, the Day of Atonement every year, because it didn't last. It wasn't perfect. And it wasn't even really effective when you study Hebrews. It says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sins. But now this perfect sacrifice of Christ is a once for all time. It's now good for everyone whom it would be applied to as well as for all time. Hebrews 9.26 sums it up. It says, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's our second reason why it's so important. Jesus was here as a man, to be that perfect high priest, to be that perfect sacrifice. The third one is he had to become our, our mediator between God and man. Think of what a mediator does. Is that he or she will sit in between two parties, generally in a, in a conflict situation, and try to arbitrate and say, hey, this person wants this, this person wants that. Let's try to meet in the middle. Let's try to figure this out. And unfortunately, the most obvious example in our society today is in the realm of divorce, right? So not recommending that, but it's where you tend to see this, this a mediator used most often. And you get into the situation of a divorce and, and the husband says, well, I want all of this. I think this is how we should break up our assets like you get custody of the dog on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and they really break it down to that level, and they're fighting over these things. And the wife says, well, but Tuesdays is the day I want to bring him to the groomer, and it's our special time together, and I want your 401k. You can't have my... And they're fighting over this. And the mediator's sitting in between trying to get them to a resolution. And if it's a female mediator, the husband's going, well, you're just taking her side because she's a woman or vice versa, the same thing. You have this fight because it's an imperfect role of the mediator. Yet when we look at Christ being fully God and fully man, he is perfectly suited to be the mediator between God and men. Because man can't say, well, Jesus, you don't really get it. You're God. Like you just, you're not one, you know. You don't understand what we're dealing with here. He says, I was one of you. I'm a, I am a man like you are. I, I lived that life. I get it. And on the other side, he is perfectly suited to represent us before God because he's God from all eternity. The father isn't going, hey, no, no, shoot, you're not ready for this yet. This is big league. No, he is God with God the father. So he's perfectly suited as our mediator. Which is why 1 Timothy 2 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And he fulfills that role perfectly. Our fourth one is he's our example, but our, our aspiration. He, the life that he lived in the flesh is what we are to aspire to try to mimic and be like. I, maybe the worst verse in the Bible for us that is the most like, Twist the knife while it's in there. Look at Matthew 5.48. It says, be perfect as I am perfect. Yeah, I missed that one. I, I didn't. I, I know what it says. I'm nowhere near it. But we're still to strive for that. Strive for the holiness without which you will not see the Lord. Hebrews. 1 John 2.6, whoever claims to live in Christ, in him, must walk as Jesus did. We're to, to mimic the life that he lived. 2 Corinthians 3 and Romans 8 right? I got to sneak my Romans 8 in there every week. We're being transformed into his likeness. We're becoming more like Christ. If he didn't live a life here on earth, what would we look to to know what that is? 
Special thanks to Brian Hava for throwing Romans 8 into the free service. Yeah, it was good work there. Um, and finally, 1 Peter 2.21. This is the one we don't like is like the, hey, we're to copy him in. His suffering is a model for our suffering. We are not promised a life free of, of suffering and, and worry and strain. And we are actually shown that that's a model for ours. He showed us how to suffer well, how to suffer faithfully. So our fifth one is, he's our pattern for our redeemed bodies. We're a resurrection people. We are looking forward to a day when the body that's loaded with sin and death is gone and we have this resurrection body. Well, Jesus already has that. We saw what that looked like. He, we can look at him post-resurrection walking around going, that's what we're looking forward to. That's what's promised to us. And because he lived as a man was resurrected, we, we have confidence that the resurrection is true and real. We see that pattern. If you want to study the, the resurrection of, of believers, you should read and study 1 Corinthians 15. It's a great chapter, deals in depth around our resurrection. I'm not going to go through all of that this morning to your thanks. Um, but I want to look at verse 49. It says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, right? He was formed from the dust, Genesis 2. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Right? We're going to have that image in us for eternity. That's a forward-looking, our resurrection. We have that image of the man of heaven. We're going to follow that pattern with our redeemed bodies, with our resurrected bodies. And our sixth and final reason why it was so important for Jesus to become a man and live the life he lived is to sympathize as our high priest, right? So not only is he fitted to be a high priest, he's now perfect in that role to represent, because a priest really represents the people before God, right? And in Hebrews 2.18, it says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So it takes away all our excuses. We try to make them. We're really good at making them. We can devise ones that we think are pretty original, but they don't have standing. Jesus, you, you, know, you just don't know what it's like to be alone. I just have nobody around me. He goes, I spent 40 days alone in the wilderness being attacked by Satan. I know what it's like to be alone, right? But Jesus, you don't understand. Like, I, I so wanted to have that drink. I, I wanted to cheat on my taxes. I wanted to look at that website. I wanted to, like, you don't know why I was making those excuses of why I wasn't at work the other day. Right? You, just, you just don't get it. Do you think I was partying in the desert? I was offered the entire world to rule over bypassing all the suffering that was going to come to me that I knew was coming. I was offered that as a temptation. I know what it's like to turn down an offer. You wanted a few hours of pleasure. I was offered the world. Yeah, but you don't know what it's like to have your friends and families ditch you. I just feel like I'm totally alone. Do you remember the night of my arrest when they all scattered and I was left alone. 
Yeah, but you don't understand. I'm, I'm under so much stress. I have this project at work. Like, I have problems at home. My family's nagging me. Like work is bugging me. Like I, it's just so much. I, do you remember when I was sweating blood in the garden because of the stress of looking towards the cross? Yeah, but you don't know that this pain in my body, this cancer is ravaging me. I just can't take this pain anymore. Do you know what the word excruciate means? It means to come out of the cross. My physical pain was so bad, Jesus says, that they literally invented a word to describe it. I understand your pain. There is no experience we can have or suffer under with which Jesus can't say, I understand my child. I completely get what you're dealing with. I was a human. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And it goes on, it says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Draw near to that throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? Because we have this high priest that completely gets us, that has dealt with the temptation in every way just like we are, and because we now come in his righteousness, we can walk into the throne of grace, stand before him, withstanding, not our own, but his standing, and get help in our time of need. That would be entirely different if he did not live this life as a man. We have that access now. So our third and final assertion, right, we, is that Jesus is still a human in heaven, if we can get that up there. He's still, so post-resurrection, when Thomas was earning his dubious nickname, Mr. Doubter, um, kind of gets a bad rap, but he's forever doubting Thomas. Uh, we, the description of Jesus is that he would be Thomas would be touching the scars. Post-resurrection, he still has a body. There's still the scars from his body there to be touched. Uh, in, in Luke 24, post-resurrection, he's eating a meal with his disciples. Non-humans wouldn't be eating. If he was some ghost, spirit-only character, he wouldn't be eating. But he's eating a meal with them. You look at Acts 1, verse 11, it says that he's going to come back to us in the same manner in which he left. Right after the ascension, they're like, and the answer is, he's going to come back in the same way that he left. How did he, how did he leave us? He left us in bodily form. He's coming back in bodily form. And if you look at some validation of that, it's like, in heaven now, is Jesus still a man? Well, look at the visions that we've seen. Saul, on the road to Damascus, uh, on his way to kill Christians, has a vision. He sees the risen Christ. He sees him in bodily form. John, on the island of Patmos, when he's receiving the revelation, he gets a vision. What does he see? The risen Christ in bodily form. It is normal to see and can still consider Jesus to be human. 
at this last supper, when he's, when he's taking the bread and he's taking the cup, what does he say? I will not eat or drink of this again until he does so in his father's kingdom. There's a continuity of the physical nature of Jesus because he still eats post-ascension. And of course, none of that violates the fact that he is fully God this entire time. He is fully God and fully man throughout. But I think it's clear that he remains in human form. Um, I was talking with, with Haley about this. She said the book Gentle and Lowly that a bunch of you read a year or two ago when we handed it out to a bunch of folks in the church, that that was a concept in the book and a lot of people just hadn't even considered it. It hadn't even really entered their consciousness that Jesus was still man, still human. And just how when you start reading through scripture, you see these things, you go, oh yeah, of course, like it makes sense now. But it hadn't really occurred to us prior. So um, I think that might have been part of where this question came from. So in conclusion, uh, our last slide, Jesus was fully God and fully man throughout. Not some mutant hybrid of the two. He wasn't half God, half man. He was fully God, fully man. I think we spent our time today acknowledging that he is actually fully man. Two, Jesus needed to become a man by being born of the flesh, to grow into a man, to fulfill the law by living a sinless life, to become the perfect high priest, to become the perfect sacrifice, to be raised in bodily form, to conquer death for the forgiveness of our sins. And because of all that, we can look to Jesus as our example, as our mediator between us and God, and he can understand and sympathize with all that we go through in our life. And number three, Jesus remains a man now, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for the saints as our mediator. So let's pray. Father, we uh, just thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for the life of Christ. Uh, we thank you he lived that life of obedience that earned us the righteousness that we now have, that, that great exchange of 2 Corinthians 5, that though he knew no sin, he became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, that, that is such an amazing gift to us. Uh, we thank you that we are a resurrection people. We thank you that we look forward to that day when we see you face to face, that we are fully known, that we are rid of this body of sin and death, that, that our struggles are no more, our pain is no more, our angst is no more, and that we are in eternity with you. Um, but in the meantime, Lord, may we acknowledge Jesus as our mediator, as our great high priest, and may we joyfully follow him and follow your word as his example says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.